Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Soli Caetano. In this episode, Soli will tell us how to get into real estate investing, how to invest out of state, and how to raise private money for her deals. We'll also be covering how to use social media platforms to build a following and expand your network. So if you want to learn how to build passive income through out-of-state rentals or how to raise money through friends, families, and followers, then you need to watch this episode. This episode is sponsored by Conventus. Conventus is a hard money lender based in San Francisco that can help you with your fix and flip projects. So whether you're looking for a bridge loan or a loan for your rental properties, feel free to contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. And now, on to the show. Okay, Soli, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Okay, thanks for having me, Sean. So by day, I'm a commercial real estate broker. And in my spare time, I'm building my out-of-state rental portfolio in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I'm located in the Silicon Valley. And how did you get started with real estate in general? Well, so it's kind of just happenstance. So I had a friend who worked at my commercial real estate firm in college, and I just really needed a job. And he knew of an opening, so I took a leap and jumped in. I knew nothing about real estate, wasn't actually like that interested in real estate, but I I just wanted a paycheck. So I ended up, I was a sophomore in college and I ended up working there for three years. And when I graduated from college, I started full time. It kind of segues into investing because I've always sort of been surrounded by real estate and investors. But as a broker, you're always acting as an intermediary. You know, you're just between companies and principals. And I always wanted to be on the principal side. So I was making money and uh, investing in my business. And so that's kind of the segue into investing that happened. You know, when I was in college, I had a landlord and I actually got to talk to him. I said, hey, like, how did you get into real estate investing yourself? He said, you know, when I was younger, I saw a lot of agents out there. And I noticed that the super wealthy are always the principals, never really the brokers. I was like, that's a good observation. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, there's such a high earning power with brokerage, but you hustle every single day. And so I watch my boss and and he is older and more closer to retirement age. And he still hustles every day, like 70, 80 hours a week. And I was like, I don't know at that age, I just want to be on a beach and not like busting my butt to feed my family. So I think it's more of the route of investing for passive income so that I can retire. Hopefully, in the next, I don't know, 10 years or so and become work optional. Yeah, that's awesome. So what are your goals and how do you plan on getting there? So my goals are $20,000 per month in passive income from rental properties by the time I'm 30. So I'm 22 right now. I have, I guess we can go over my portfolio a little bit. So I have one single family in Cincinnati, and then I will be closing on a triplex and hopefully a single family in the next two weeks. So that makes five doors. I just started investing in June of this year. So it's about six months, five doors, moved super fast. Yeah, I and mean, you just graduated, right? And so right after graduating, you're buying your first rental property. Now you're buying a few more after that. How are you able to save the finances to be able to afford all these properties? That's a great question. So, I mean, I worked full time, although pretty much all the way through college, and that was the down payment of my first property, which will be a 100% cash out in February. So until then, I felt like I basically saved my life savings on a down payment and the rehab. And so I raised private money for the triplex from friends and family for the down payment. And then 
this fifth door is hard money. So it's only about $5,000 down. Mm -hmm. Was it scary to put all of your eggs into that first property? I don't know. I mean, I've been surrounded by other out-of-state investors who are doing it. And so to me, it's just fun. I've always been like the entrepreneurial type. That's like, let's risk it for the biscuit, you know? And so, I mean, it wasn't that much money. So I figured if I lost it, you know, I would be able to recoup it pretty quickly. And also, I mean, it's real estate and it's an actual tangible asset. So worst case, it's like halfway through a renovation, I sell it and I recoup most of my money, if not all of it. So I think just because it was a tangible asset and I'm young and not too risk averse, I just kind of jumped in and didn't really think about the worst that could happen. Mm -hmm. And what did you do to prepare yourself to buy that first property? Like in terms of understanding how to analyze deals and whatnot? I guess probably listening to a lot of Bigger Pockets podcasts and then also just talking a lot to friends who were investors. I think the first time you absolutely have no idea what you're doing. And so having a mentor or a friend to look over your analysis and kind of give you that push, like, this is a good deal, go. Because in the beginning, you're like, I don't know what a good deal is. Like, what am I supposed to look for? Is it like 5% return, 20% return? You know, like how much per door, how much cash flow? And so having a bunch of friends who've done it is really helpful because I think that the fear of getting started stops a lot of people and not having a support system around them. So I think the best you can do is probably network and then also just read and listen to podcasts. So who were like your friends that you were kind of going to, to get that advice? Were they your coworkers from your brokerage? One of them is, and he's actually the one who got me my job. And so he invests in Florida and Dallas, Fort Worth. And he introduced me to out of state investing. And I thought he was absolutely crazy. I was like, what do you mean you don't see your properties? Like, you don't want to see them. And he like, he still to this day, like three or four years later has never seen any of his properties. And so like, I thought he was really crazy, but when it came to it, it just didn't make sense to invest in California for me. Cause I would have had to save for like eight. 10 more years to buy something. And so, you know, with $20,000, you can go buy a home in Cincinnati. And to me, it seems a lot less risk and a lot higher return just to, you know, 20,000 compared to like 100,000. Yeah, for sure. And how did you choose your target market when your friend is investing in like Texas and Florida? So I actually did some work in Cincinnati for my commercial jobs. We were moving a client from um, Mountain View area over to Cincinnati. And that's when I began to see how much investment was going into the city. I think it's like over a billion dollars is going into that market. Lots of tax incentives, just lots of reinvestment. I feel like if you asked an older person who went to Cincinnati 10 years ago, like, what do you think about it? They'd probably be like, oh, dangerous, you know, like stay away. But when I traveled over there, I met with a bunch of developers, went through the whole process, like walking the streets and talking to all the people who are actually doing the investing in the market and they really believed in it and I could see how lively it was how many young people were there how many jobs were there so it's centered in healthcare and education and a lot of consumer staples and so it's a I think it's a relatively recession-proof city also an affordable price and so when I went over there I was able to meet a couple local investors so when I decided to get started investing, I just called them up and it happened to be where I knew people, where the numbers made sense and where I thought the economy was going to hold up. It's so funny because 
two years ago, probably when I just started this podcast, I actually went to Cincinnati to get into multifamily apartment investing. So I was going to go commercial. Yeah. For $2 million, you can buy like a 40 or 50 unit apartment complex. Isn't that crazy? Did you buy something? I was about to, but it didn't happen. But it's just funny because I remember like talking to all these brokers and agents and a lot of people were saying, yeah, back in the day, what's the one player card like over the Rhine or something? Over the Rhine, yeah, yeah. Over the Rhine. super yeah. nice area. Yeah. It's kind of like Oakland, like East Oakland right now, like a lot of. It's like the Mission in San Francisco. Yeah, it's exactly super bougie area. They were saying that before it used to be like murder capital of the world. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's like still kind of in some places a little sketchy. Like it'll be very nice, and then you'll turn the corner and it's just vacant buildings for rows and rows. And so, I think that while there are really nice parts, there's still great parts where you can value add in just changing parts of the city. So I love it. I think that the prices are fantastic. The returns, I tell people what kind of returns I get on my properties and they're just like, what? Like it yeah. just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So I don't know. I personally am a huge fan of Cincinnati. Yeah. I see a lot of development and potential in there. So what is like a typical deal and what does that look like for you? Okay, every deal has been so different. I'm someone who just kind of jumps in and then figures it out. And I think real estate is fun. And so I tried to take on fun deals. And so the first one was funded with a conventional mortgage. I funded the renovation with a credit card. And then the second one was private money. And so that was completely different. And that was a triplex, it was multifamily. The third one is hard money, which is a completely different ball game. And so is there any one that you want to dive into? Yeah, let's like- just start with the first one. I guess like what was like the purchase price? What was the rents and like why you thought this was a good deal? Okay, yeah. So the purchase price was $98,000. And the renovation was roughly $20,000. And the after repair value is at least probably $160,000. So I'm getting it reappraised right now and we'll see, but it should be a 100% cash out. The rents are $1,600 and after PITI and reserves, it cash flows $685 per month. And that's a 20 just over a 20% cash on cash return. Mm-hmm. So you did that one with like 80% LTV, conventional yep. financing. And then did you kind of pay for the rehab costs out of pocket? Credit card. Oh, right. Credit card. So I guess you're <laughs> taking whatever rents you get to pay off that credit card bill. The refinance will pay it off. But in retrospect, I probably would not do it because it's really hurt my credit score. But yeah, I mean, at the time I was like, yeah, it makes sense. 0% APR for 15 months. I hear a lot of people do it. Like, let's just do it. So I got a credit card for like 15 or 20 grand and I just put all the renovations on there, racked up a ton of points. And that's how I funded the first one. That's awesome. I think you can get your credit score back though, if it's just a, like a, what's called you. Utilization ratio. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I just, I paid it off and I I didn't actually have to use it. It was more like, yeah, like let's do 0% APR. (laughs) But I worked so hard to get my credit score up that just like, it pains me every time I see it come in, like just plummeting. (laughs) Yeah. It's weird. When you start doing more and more deals, you're going to get your credit pulled more and more often. And I know your score's going to drop, but even though you're actually doing better financially, it's it's so weird. (laughs) I literally have had like four or five or six checks in the past six months because every time you buy a property, it's checked. Every time you open a credit card, it's checked. And so I was like, my late payments are none, but like the checks and the utilization is really high. So lenders don't like me right now. 
Okay. And so what did you do for the next property? You say it was a triplex, but you also raised private money for it. So how did that whole situation work? So, I mean, I looked at a bunch of properties. I almost bought a duplex. I almost bought a 12 plex and that, like you said, they're really cheap. They're probably like 450 grand for 12 units. So I was looking at some big deals and I didn't have enough money. I didn't have like any money because I had spent it all on the first one. And so I went to my friends and family and basically pitched them on uh, contributing to a fund because I didn't know exactly what I was going to invest in. I just needed money backing so that I knew I could put in offers and had the money to put down. So pitched to friends and family, had a couple people agree. The terms were 7% interest only, and it was a term of three years. And so whatever I'd bought, it would be a value add and I'd refinance and I don't know, a year or two and pay them back their private money. So I found that one on CoStar, which is the sister company of LoopNet. It's a commercial database. And so it was advertised really strangely. It had been on the market for a long time, which is really strange because triplexes go super fast in Cincinnati. But because the advertising was off, I guess I got the great deal. And I had a really long inspection contingency period so that I could season my private money for 60 days, which is the kind of the conventional loan standard. And that'll be closing next week. It's exciting. Yeah. So, so that one is 155 grand purchase price. It's fully rented out for 2150. And so after all expenses, probably $900 in cash flow per month. And that one is a 20% cash on cash return in general. But then when I consider how much money I'm putting in the deal and just paying interest, it's more like 30%. Mm -hmm. And so I guess your family members and friends are comfortable giving you the money because they trust you, they know you, and I guess they're backed, like, are they backed by the property at all? Or is it kind of just like an agreement between you guys that you're going to pay them 7% on their money? It's just an agreement. And what's actually really funny is I didn't intend to ask them, but because they were watching my social media channels, they got really interested in real estate. And these are people who don't know that much about real estate, but because they watched the process of my first property, I guess they just wanted a piece of it. And they wanted to just, you know, like, let's invest in her. And I told them, let's like, you'll be my first investor. I'm going to guarantee your money back. Like I'll take my retirement and pay you back. If the place burns down, like take a chance on me and let's see where this goes. And so it was, because it was family, I think that's honestly the best place to start because there's a existing relationship. And if it takes a little bit longer, it's like not the worst thing in the world. I mean, I think that private money is a great way to go, especially because you're limited by your own funds and how much you can save really difficult to save money. So if you can use other people's money, especially for something like 7%, which is a great rate for private money, I'd say go for it. Absolutely. I know people who host meetup events, they raise money. Sometimes they offer like 12%, it may be one point. Yeah. Right. Just for private money. And yeah. if you do the syndication method, it's often like 70% of the profits plus 8% preferred returns. So, I know. I yeah. know. I feel like if you go to people who have their money in, in high yield savings accounts or just sitting in the bank, which is what was happening, it's like, it's not really doing much. It's probably making you less than 1%. Right. And so in their mind, it's like, okay, I'll take 7%. That's way better than the 1% that's sitting in the bank. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I guess the bank was okay with giving you this loan because 
they saw that the money was in your account for over 60 days and it was yeah. seasoned and they're still, I guess, underwriting it based on your income from your, from your job and partially from the rents coming from that triplex as well. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And I guess now you have another property that you purchased, but this time you use hard money instead. So why did you decide to go hard money route instead of the conventional like loan amount? So after the first property and the little bit that I had to put in for the triplex, I literally had no money, like none at all. And like negative money. And so I guess this was a really great deal. Like again, cash on cash of over 20%, over 30%. So that was kind of the, the only way to do it. Cause it's only $5,000 down and they fund the renovation. And so that one's a $72,000 purchase price. It's two blocks from my first property, probably a 40 to $50,000 renovation. And it should be worth around $180,000 rent for $1,600. So that was really the only way I was going to be able to buy a property. It is very leveraged. And I guess to some people, that's really scary. But again, in the beginning, I don't have much to lose. And so <laughs> might as well fail fast and, and quick so that I learn while I'm young. Yeah, you're young. So you have time to recover if there's any stumbling uh, situations. Exactly. And in this case, you said it was 70 something thousand to purchase. What did you say the rehab cost was again? It'll be about probably 40 to 50. Okay. And again, the hard money lender is funding that for you. Yep. Yep. Okay. Is the plan to hold on to that long-term or to sell it once it's rehabbed? So, so this was the story. This is the full story. When, when you first reached out to me uh, to be on the podcast and it was like in maybe, I don't know, three weeks or four weeks. I told myself I have to have something interesting to tell Sean Pan on his podcast. <laughs> so I'm going to get a house to flip under contract. And I don't know, but it happened. And this is, this is the house. <laughs> and so it was meant to be a flip, but after analyzing the numbers, it would probably be $30,000 in profit for a flip. And I think it just makes more sense to burr it because at the end of the day, there's almost no money left in the deal. And so you're creating money out of basically no money. So I think that this will be a buy and hold. Plus all my properties are within one mile of each other. And I really like the area. So it's a highly appreciating area as well. So I think that I'm going to hold on to these. Okay. Have you had any issues with the bird method so far? As you know, you try to implement it, you have all these theories, but when you try to actually do it, there's some things that come up. I think that the hardest part is, is the people is like the dealing with vendors. So I have had a really hard time just finding the right people for a team, especially investing in properties that are 2000 plus miles away. I had to fire my property manager who was also my contractor. And so now I'm like self-managing my properties, which is great for learning, but it's definitely not scalable and that's been a little bit difficult. So I would say, especially burring out of state, it, you have a tight timeline for turning around these properties. And when you're not physically there, it's really difficult to manage people. Yeah, for sure. I think having your team and your boots on the ground team, right? That's the most important part of this whole process. And since you don't have a property manager now, what are you going to do to find the next one? To find the next deal? The next property manager, the next person to oh, cover yourself. Oh, 
Well, so I'm property managing by myself right now, and it's not so bad. I mean, I have a realtor friend who does leasing for me, and so he charges me like a month of rent to place the tenant. And once the tenant's placed, it's it's honestly like not that bad. I might, I don't know. I think at this point I might have to start a property management firm because it's so hard to find people you trust and you care about your properties as much as you do. But really, I don't know. It's a later problem. I'll figure it out. Okay. I mean, there are some investors that do that. They have such a big portfolio. They don't trust outside property management groups. So they create their own. It's a lot cheaper because they're on salary instead of a percentage of your gross income. Right. Yeah. And I mean, personally, like when I have properties and projects out of state, I trust my property manager to also do the rehab, like you mentioned. So Mm -hmm. what do you plan on doing for the flip? Do you already have like a GC crew that could help you with this project? Yeah, so I actually flew out to Cincinnati for the first property, and I lived in the house on the floor for four weeks, and I did a lot of the work myself along. My GC had a bunch of subs that did the work, and so because I was living in the house while they were working, I became pretty like good friends with them, and so I talked a lot more to the subs than the GCs, and so I essentially acted as a GC, so for this house, I just called the sub and said, can you please do the work? So. Awesome. You know, I <laughs> yeah. want to do that too. Uh, I want to go fly out, buy a you know, cheap property, live in it. Maybe not live in it. Maybe I'll like, Airbnb nearby, but we'll go to the house pretty often, work with the subs and GC and learn. Cause it's, it's, so it's great. Stuff. Yeah, no, I know my friend who hasn't seen any of his properties. He doesn't believe it that he has to ever go. But I think that actually living in the property and living through the construction is just irreplaceable experience. So what I think I might do, there's a month to month tenant in the triplex. And so I might give them notice and live inside that unit while flipping the new house. So I think it's a great way to find deals to network. I've met so many people in Cincinnati that way so that when I'm back here in California, I can call them whenever and say like, please, can you please go check on my property? So I've had friends like take my marketing pictures for me for free, like go check on the work of the contractors. And so having a community in wherever you're investing is really priceless. And best way to do that is to fly out there. Yeah, super important. And do you ever plan on investing in other markets or even in the Bay Area yourself? That's a tough one because I've never seen returns as good as Cincinnati. Eventually, I think probably just to diversify market. Eventually I'd like to buy a primary residence here and maybe house hack and that sort of investment in, in the Bay Area. But for the at least medium term, my sights are set on bigger multifamily in Cincinnati. Yeah. You can just go up to the apartment style. Actually, I think I have a friend that has a pretty big apartment portfolio in Cincinnati. Maybe I can connect you guys after the show. Yeah. Well. What's his name by chance? Do you know? Do you know Mike Ely by any chance? Yeah, so I've talked to someone who works on his team, actually. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So transitioning over, I also know that you're very, very big on social media. I think right now you have almost 5,000 people. That's a little generous. Well, it's nice. I like it. I think it's very impressive considering you just started this a few months ago, right? Yeah, so I got started in maybe it was April of this year, and it was really just to document my journey, just kind of for myself so I could look back and see what I was doing. But it kind of took it a life of its own and it started snowballing and growth. And I think that's honestly one of the reasons why I've been able to acquire so many properties so quickly 
and avoid a lot of mistakes because I have essentially 5,000 investors who are behind my back to answer questions. Again, a big portion of them are in Cincinnati. So, you know, like to be able to advise me on the market, advise me on deals. The flip actually was under contract previous to me. And I had posted a picture on my story, like under contract. And somebody reached out to me from Cincinnati and said, actually, I was the person who was under contract last, one of my followers. And she gave me all of her design scope. And like, this is what I plan to do here and here and here and here. And I was like, I never thought about that. You can add like three more bedrooms. I had no idea. So I think things like that were just random value adds from followers. Like I learned more from them than they probably learned from me. So I'm just trying to be the honest view of what it is like to start in real estate. Good, the bad, the mistakes, you know, the insecurities of getting started. So I think it's been helpful for at least some people. It's super cool. It's like a point of view of someone starting their journey because you don't want to have some guests on the podcast and they're doing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Mm-hmm. they're not super relatable, right? It's like, okay, great <laughs> story. I love it. I love that you're very successful, but I don't think I'm going to be there. But someone who's starting yeah. out, someone who's buying their first few rental properties, okay, I can do that. And so I yeah. want to see the that you're going that's, through. That's what I kind of want to be. It's like, I'm just a really a regular person. Like I'm not the smartest person in the world. Like I definitely don't have that much money. Like my parents weren't at all in real estate. And if someone like me can get into real estate and like buy a bunch of doors, then I think that anyone should see like they can do it too. So that's really the point of being honest is like, you can do it. I can do it. Like I'm just a regular person that's trying to be relatable and helpful for other people. What do you think you are posting on your Instagram like feed that's making it get so big in such a short amount of time? tough one. <laughs> As an example, uh, so my, my girlfriend is also doing like TikTok stuff too. And okay. there are some posts that get like a million views, right? And she knows which ones they are. So she was like, okay, basically if you flex more, you say how much you're making on blah, blah, blah properties, <laughs> more people actually like that stuff. What has it I been find, for you? I think it's the opposite. So the ones that I post that are really relatable, like, wow, COVID sucks. Like I'm feeling so down today or oh my gosh i am having such a hard time with my property manager like i don't know how i'm gonna do it or like i have no money like what am i gonna do i think those posts actually do really well for me because not a lot of people feel comfortable exposing all of their problems to the world and that's something that i have no problem doing so i i like to share that kind of stuff so i think people find that really relatable I like to encourage people to do it more often because everyone knows that social media is just a highlight of your life. But the more realistic version of investing that you give people, the less prone they are to give up because they have a really realistic view of like all the troubles and problems that you go through. And that at the end of the day, like we all go through them, but it's still worth that. Because when they see like only highlights and then they go like, huge plumbing issue, $10,000. I think that a lot of people would just jump to like, this isn't worth it. I'm quitting. Sure. Yeah. I think think authenticity really makes a big difference in this world. Like, like you said, everything you see is a highlight reel. I mean, I see a bunch of my friends on Instagram and Facebook and they're killing it, right? Killing it. Mm -hmm. So I say, Hey, let's get on zoom. Let's chat for an hour. Then you find out the real story. Okay. It's not all (laughs) sunshines and rainbows. There's a lot of things going on in the background as well. Yeah. Yep. 
And another thing that I noticed too is a few weeks ago, I attended your meetup when you had Tom on and I thought it was an amazing meetup and I was very surprised that it was your first event. What do you think you did to gather such a large crowd for your very first meetup event? I think that I have an active and engaged audience because I actively engage with them every day. And so I think people don't realize how much time it's, it takes to grow an audience like that. Like I probably personally chat on DMs with at least 50 people a day. I know it's it's shocking, (laughs) but I mean, that's what it takes. Like they're real friendships and people show up because I've taken the time to get to know them and support them and answer their questions and like send them resources and give them a bunch of free stuff that I think that they show up for me in return. So it's a very, it's a two-way street. I invest a ton of time in them. And so I think in return, they invest a lot of time with me. And so I think it's a little also shocking for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, 65 people. Like I got to talk to these people. (laughs) But I I have, I've talked to all of them personally many, many times over the last couple of months. So they're more like they are true friends. And that's what I like about, I consider my page to be still relatively small. And I like growing it that way and not doing any sort of extra promotion because I've talked to probably half of them a lot and I know them all personally. So that's great. So they basically follow you on Instagram and then they just, you know, slide in your DM and chat and then you just chat back and talk we to chat people all day. That's crazy. <laughs> and I met a lot of them in person too. So a lot of them are in Cincinnati area or like Lexington area. And so when I, when I'm over there, I made a point to meet at least I don't know, probably 10 or 12 of them. So it's been, it's been really fun. Yeah. What do you think is like one of the most common questions that people are reaching out to you for? I mean, they're usually more personal questions like why Cincinnati? Like that's probably the most common question I get. Or how do you raise private money? Because I think that it's not really a typical route to raise private money, especially for your first couple of deals. And so that's, those are probably the two most common questions I get. And then just people like to chat. So. Got it. I mean, I think you raising private money for your second deal is very impressive. And I don't think many people do that at all. In fact, I very rarely raise private money. Personally, like I've had some mixed results from it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and there's also like a lot of responsibility to hold on to someone's cash. Like you said, if something bad happens, if you have the ability to, sure, like sell your retirement stocks and pay them back. But what if you can't? Then you're in a very awkward situation. So I actually heard on a podcast that they that some people love that feeling because it makes you not be able to fail. Like you will do everything in your power to not fail. And so that's kind of how I see it. It's like, it's not my money. Like, of course, I don't want to lose my money, but like I for sure don't want to lose my family's money. And so I think that I will try to do everything in my power, even if it's flying out there, knocking on my tenant's door and asking for a rent check to to make sure that people get paid back. And I think that's sort of the mindset that private money gives me. So I know it's scary, but I think that the extra responsibility actually helps to make you a better investor. And if you're doing buy and holds in general, you should be more safe. It's definitely trickier when you're doing like, like syndications where you want to like, convert a property to increase the rents, then some issues might come up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, worst comes to worst, sell the property, 
recoup most of your money and pay them back. So exactly. that's the beautiful thing about real estate. It's just, I mean, it's always going to be a tangible asset. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is next for you? That's a, also a hard question because I kind of just roll with the punches and take the most exciting deal. But, <laughs> but I really, really want to buy sort of medium-sized multifamily. And so I think that next year, my goal is to replace my W-2 income by the end of the year. And I'm probably a third of the way there. And so I think by buying something like a 10 to 15 unit building next year would probably do it for me. And I think that since my goal, ultimate goals is bigger multifamily, that's a great next step to get there. So in this case, maybe a 10 unit will cost you around 500,000. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How would you get financing for that? I don't know if you've looked that, that far into it because when I was in your shoes, maybe two years ago, yeah. I bought a property in Alabama for 700K, 20 mm-hmm. units, 700K. I was like, this is a great deal. Right next to Walmart, each one was renting for like $600, 650 per month. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, this is going to cash flow like crazy. But the bank wouldn't give me a loan. Why not? It's a, it's a commercial property. So past four. a commercial lender? Uh, commercial brokers that I knew were only doing like Freddie Mac small balance loans which is like a million dollar loan amount or higher. Darn, you need to reach out to some more lenders. Oh, for sure. This is back in <laughs> 2018, early 2018. So I didn't have a connection there and I found somebody, okay. but then they said, you know, we could do this loan, but you don't live in the state. So now we can't do this loan for you. I think that the problem is not the money, but the deals. And if you find a good deal, money will come. So I probably talked to, I don't know, like, 20 lenders and you get like 19 no's and then you get the one person who says maybe maybe and so I think that's what call a mortgage broker the mortgage broker can talk to like 20 other banks for you and talk to a couple mortgage brokers you're essentially talking to 100 banks so I would do commercial financing they're a little looser on their regulations and so maybe I get like a business line of credit for the down payment put that down. <laughs> like again like really really leveraged but again like if the deal works I think the money is not the hard part and I yeah. think especially with the social media presence push came to shove I could probably find another partner like that I would say that would be the best way you know raise 150 through your social media following there's probably someone out there who's willing and interested in investing with you as a yeah. partner and then figure out the whole commercial financing situation for super low balance loans I still haven't so figured I, it out, to I be honest. That. I did that for the, for the 12th flat. I found someone on Instagram to be the third partner. And that ended up falling through. And then I ended up buying the triplex. But that's how I found her, through, through a comment on Instagram. Wow. So it's definitely possible. I've had lots of people offer me, offer to be private money lenders in my DMs. So <laughs> I think that money will come when the, when the good deal comes. So when they DM you and they're interested, do you guys have like a phone conversation after that? And like, how does yeah, that whole situation work? It's a little strange because they're just a person. It's not like a financial institution that if something goes wrong, it's like you're an actual company. Like, give me my money, you know? A person can like pull out at any time. They could just choose not to fund you at the end of the day. So I guess I, I go through what they want their terms to be. And then I ask them, what their past experience with investing. Cause again, like it's a two way street. They're investing with a random person on social media. Like, is that a good decision? 
I don't know. <laughs> and it's not and even so, like a small amount of money. It's like a you know, hundred thousand. No, I know. I know. And so at the end of the day, if it gets serious, it would have to be a two-way presentation of this is the deal. This is me. These are my values. And let me hear from you. What is your investing experience then? Like, how do you act as a lender? Because some people are really, they like to be way too hands-on on when they're private money like tell me your decisions I gotta approve everything like I don't want that type of money <laughs> and so it's just hashing out from like it's a relationship game real estate is all a relationship game so I think building trust over a couple phone calls a couple presentations and then like show me the money and that's just goes from there so it's a little odd social media is a little bit weird but it's such a powerful thing that I will absolutely keep using it that's awesome. Yeah. And best of luck with your success in the future. Thank um, you. What would you say are some tips that you like to give to our listeners before we finish up our show today? Network as much as you can. I mean, whether it's like sharing your story through social media or going to meetups like mine or yours, I think that the more people you know, like your network, your network is your net worth. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and I and things like they just start to open doors for you. And so whether it's like fear of jumping in, whether it's like not knowing where to get money from, not knowing like what lenders to talk to, your network opens up those doors can like support you along the way. So I would say if you're stuck, if you don't know what next, if you don't know where to go, find yourself a meetup, find yourself a mentor, find yourself a friend to invest in real estate, slide into my DMs and just, you know, talk. But I think networking is key. It's true. If we knew everyone in the world and we all had perfect information, we would have the best property managers, the best lenders, <laughs> the best contractors. Yeah. You know, one or two phone calls away. So. Exactly. And I would say also like call a bunch of people. I think some people, especially me too, I called one lender for my first property and I was like, that's it. That's my lender. But I should have probably called like 10 or 12 to vet people. Cause you start to, you start to see the differences in people. You start to see who's good and why it makes them good. And so I would say that's also part of networking is calling like 10 agents, 10 property managers, 10 lenders, and don't make your decisions and jump in until you've done that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So Soli, how can people find out more about you? You can find me on Instagram. So it's at lattes.and.lisas or my website, it's lattesandlisas.com. Awesome. Well, Soli, thank you again so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Of course. Thanks, Sean. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.